It's great to be here this morning. It's great to see so many new faces. Well, actually, I've got a lot of visitors here this morning, so if you're here for the first time, let me give you a special welcome. Uh, and we're, we're just in the middle of a series looking at the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we've been going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and really we've got this series, The Down-to-Earth Jesus. It's all about uh, how God came to earth as this incredible man, Jesus, um, and just some of the amazing things he did and some of the amazing things we can learn from him. And actually this week in particular, we're going to be looking at the topic of healing. And about this time last year, I attended the Jesus Loves Conference for the first time. It's just been on again this year and some of us were involved in that, which is great. It's a fantastic conference. Um, It involves getting out onto the streets of Liverpool with other churches um, and praying for people and and just telling about Jesus' love. Um, And actually at the meetings as well as the outreach, there's a big emphasis on, on prayer ministry, on miraculous gifts for the Spirit, and on, on healing. And on one of the meetings I went to last year, there was a real, a really passionate speaker who spoke a lot about healing, a lot of faith, really rose faith for healing in, in, in me. And there was a call at the end of the meeting, look, if anyone feels any healing for something, let's, you know, let's go for it, let's, let's, let's ask God for healing. I, I've been suffering, to be honest, for, for quite a long time now, over... Gosh, over 10 years uh, with an ongoing uh, condition called Achilles tendonitis. I've put a picture of Achilles there, just in case you didn't know where they were. It's been actually quite a a difficult uh, thing at times. It it flares up, it gets worse at different times. You could say it's my Achilles heel. Um, Yeah, there you go. Just to check someone's listening. (laughs) Sometimes it's okay. This morning I'm I'm not feeling too much pain. But other times, my it's like my Achilles, both of them are just screaming at me. We know you love football, we know you love cricket, but we belong on the body of a man who's six stone lighter than you. And will you give us a break? Uh, and at worst, it's an injury that can, it can keep me awake at night, it'll just throb and ache, and you know, if I've overdone it with physical exercise, um, and there's not much comfort for it. And, so, and that night at, at this conference, I just felt, okay, I'm, I'm going to get prayed for, I, I want this to go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask for prayer, I really want this, 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 this condition to go. I'd had physiotherapy before. I'd had prayer before, and it hadn't, it hadn't happened. So I, I rose my hand, raised my hand, and I asked to be prayed for. And a really enthusiastic young lady came and, and prayed with me. She was one of the people who had actually been preaching at the conference. I thought, I'm, I've got a good chance here. She's obviously one of the holy ones. She's been on stage. She's preached. She's definitely going uh, to sort this out. Uh, and she prayed. And she prayed with real faith and persistence for a good few minutes, actually. And I could feel faith rising in me. I was like, this is, this is going to happen. And then she finished praying, and she was like, "Right, check, you know, check the check the injury. Is it is it gone?" And I flexed my ankles, and there was that familiar sharp twinge of pain straight away. It, it hadn't gone, just just as it was before. And she prayed again, and again, and and, and kept praying. And, and to be honest, nothing happened. And I left that building that night with the same injury that I'd walked in with. I almost wanted to apologise to the woman. She prayed so fervently, and and this hadn't gone. I remember, though, as she left me, as she walked away from me, she said, look, I'm, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's not gone, but it will go. That injury will go. And it kind of struck me. It was like, wow, she's very confident, very confident. And I'm not sure I share that confidence, but okay, thank you. you know, thank you for praying, and, and I'll take that away with me. That kind of stayed with me. I didn't quite know what to make of it, though. And I, I don't know if this, that's a familiar story to, to some of us here. I mean, how many of us have had an injury or have an illness that you've had prayed for maybe several times, and, it, and it's still not gone yet? I'm sure there are people in the room, lots of people raising their hands. It could be a fairly trivial injury. If, on, if I'm honest, my Achilles tendonitis is quite a trivial injury. It's not, it's not sort of life-altering. It could be a lot more serious things that you've, 
you've struggled with, that you've asked for prayer for, you've just you've cried out to God. Would you take this away? And it hasn't gone. It could be it could be a sports injury, it could, but it could be something like a food intolerance or a, a mental health problem or even something really, really serious and terminal like a cancer. And, you know, as Christians, we live in attention because as Christians, we see a God who throughout the Bible is a God of healing. So much so that one of the names that God gives himself in the Old Testament is Jehovah Rophe. I am the Lord that heals. It's one of his very names. The Old Testament is full of these names. We're all uh, familiar with Jehovah Jireh, or Jehovah Jireh, we used to call him in Liverpool. Um, <laughs> but the God who provides, the God who provides, and we don't often talk about Jehovah Rophe. It's another one of his compound names. Jehovah is the God who heals. He is the God of healing. And throughout Scripture, we see Old Testament, New Testament, God miraculously, against all medical reason, healing people and using his power to heal. And today, as we look into the book of Mark again, we're going to see two more incredibly powerful stories where Jesus, God in human form, heals people. We have this God who is the God of healing, and yet, as I've just said, we also know that there are times when we ask for healing and it doesn't come. And that's the tension we're going to try and tease out this morning and, and see what, what comes. So what can we learn from this passage? Let's, uh, let's read it together. We've got into the habit of this recently. Rather than me just reading it from the front, let's all read it together. If you've got a Bible with you or you can follow it on the screen. But together we're going to read Mark chapter 5 verses 21 to 43. Okay. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake... A large crowd gathered around him while he was there by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. 
when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and disciples who were with him, and he went in to where the child was. He took her by the hand and said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. It's a great story, a great piece of uh, actual, real drama, actually. And, and the, from last week, we, we had Matt preaching on Jesus casting out the, the demons, the legion, in, in the Decapolis. Decapolis, I'm just going to use my little red pointer here, is this little group of ten cities on the other side of Lake Galilee and the River Jordan. This week, the action shifts back, back over the lake. They've crossed back, back towards Nazareth and Capernaum. Capernaum uh, and that's where the action takes place. So, so last week, remember, Matt, Matt made that point, actually. They weren't on Jewish ground last week. They were on kind of enemy territory. This week, Jesus is back in, in, his, in his homeland. And once again, he draws a crowd. And that's been a theme of Mark so far, hasn't it? That he draws, wherever Jesus goes, he's doing such amazing things. People gather. People want to see what on earth is going on. And this crowd, again, is a mixture. It's a mixture of people who are fervently excited by Jesus and want to see what's going on. I want a taste of this. And yet there's also skeptics. There's also people in the crowd who are thinking, I do not like this guy. I do not like what he's peddling. I don't like what he's selling. This is a threat to me. This is a threat to the Jewish faith. This is dangerous. We need to keep a check on this guy. So we've got this mixture of people crowding him. And in this context, this guy Jairus, a synagogue ruler, and we'll come to that in a minute, he comes to Jesus and he begs for help. His daughter, later we find out it's his only daughter, is dying. And he wants Jesus to use this this amazing healing ministry, this powerful ministry that he's heard about and seen, to fix, to heal his daughter. And Jesus straight away says, okay, I'm coming with you. I will come with you. And so what happens next is a journey. This is Jesus journeying towards the house of Jairus. And the crowd follow all the way along. He's being jostled. He's being cajoled. There's people crowding around him, asking him questions. Heal this, heal that, do this, do that. He's just absolutely harangued as he makes this journey. And out of this crowd, through this crowd comes a woman. And this woman has had this, oh, just the misery of bleeding for 12 years. 12 years. She's had every kind of attention, every kind of medical intervention that her money could buy her. And yet this condition has gotten worse. And in the melee, in, in, the, in, the, in the crowd, she reaches out and she touches Jesus' cloak and she believes, because she believes that this will heal her. And amazingly, it does. And Jesus actually feels this healing power flow out of him. And to the amazement of the disciples, he says to them, who touched me? Who touched me? And the disciples are like, man, are you, look, you're being touched from all angles. There's hundreds of people here grabbing you, jostling you. How on earth are you expecting us to say, who touched you? Everyone's touching you, Jesus. He's like, no, someone touched me in a way that I felt the healing flow out of me. And eventually this woman, trembling with fear, tells Jesus, it, it was me. And he t- she tells her, him his, her story. And Jesus tells her, your faith 
has made you well. And he sends her on her way. But then just as that amazing thing has happened, the, the amazing news, this woman, this 12-year condition goes, someone from Jairus' house comes. He says, guys, it's, it's too late. Jairus, I'm so sorry, your, your daughter is dead. You needn't bother this Jesus guy anymore. It's, he's not going to be able to do anything. She's passed away. <coughs> and yet Jesus just carries on. He's unflustered. And he says these words, don't be afraid. Just believe. And so he continues his journey. And he gets to Jairus' house. And he's greeted by what says it's a commotion. It's just a scene of wailing and mourning. In fact, at the time, people would even hire professional mourners to come in and sort of whip up an atmosphere almost and, and kind of help the family to grieve. Um, so there would have just been this, this whole situation of just people wailing and weeping and crying out to God that this daughter, Jairus' only daughter, had passed away. And Jesus strolls into this and says, what are you guys all crying about? She's only asleep. She's asleep. She's not dead. And it says that they laughed at her. They laughed at him. And actually, if, if you look at the, the, the language, it's actually, it's not a, oh, isn't that funny? It's a sarcastic mocking. <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you kidding? Jesus, we, we know a dead body when we see one. We know when someone's passed. Wow, what on earth are you talking about? They just scorned him. And yet he's undeterred and he enters the girl's room and brings his three closest disciples with him and the, and the parents of, of Jairus' daughter, Jairus and his wife. And right before their very eyes, he says those words, little girl, I say to you, get up. And she rises and she is alive before their very eyes. These are, aren't they just incredible, powerful stories? Can you imagine just being there and seeing this happen? You've been in this crowd, weeping and wailing and mourning <coughs> outside about this, this poor girl who died. And then out she walks, alive just uh, and fully healthy. These are two quite different situations, but I think there's some really common threads between these two stories. I just want to touch on this one. What, what are these stories of healing? One of healing, one of actually resurrection. What themes tie these together? The first one is this, desperation. Your Jairus in this situation is a desperate, desperate man because he is faced with losing his only daughter. And that is enough to make any mother or father desperate. I know as a parent, if, even if I just see something on telly about a child dying or being snatched away or whatever, you just feel, you suddenly put yourself in that place of, oh my word, if that happened to me. Some of you will have even been through that experience of losing a child and the desperation, the desperation, the bond that is there between a parent and a child is so, so important. And when that is lost, you can just imagine the desperation that Jairus was feeling. He knows his daughter is at death's door when he comes to Jesus. And so in that desperation, he doesn't stand from afar and just try and catch Jesus' eye. He doesn't hope that Jesus might spot him and come over to him. He doesn't even try and shout from a distance and say, Jesus, Jesus, could you, could you come and help me? No, he fights to the front of the crowd and, the, and it says he falls at Jesus' feet. It's not a man, the actions of a man in control of his emotions and keeping calm. No, this is utter desperation. He is literally throwing himself at Jesus and begging him, please, can you intervene here? Otherwise, my daughter is lost. You see that desperation there. And with the woman as well, again, she's in a desperate situation. 12 years, 12 years of bleeding, years of failed treatment. She's lost everything. She's had intense pain and embarrassment. She suffered a great deal. And she too is in this position 
absolute desperation. And where all else has failed, she sees Jesus as this final hope. And she just has to get close to him. Doesn't matter that he's surrounded. Doesn't matter that he's on, on his way somewhere else. She fights her way through because she just knows, I've got to see Jesus. I've got to touch his cloak because that is the only thing. I'm desperate. I've got to see this happen. And the alternative of continued suffering, continued bleeding, is just too much to bear. So that's the first thing these two people have in common, desperation. The second thing is this, and it's risk. Out of this desperation comes risk-taking. You know, actually, these, both of these people take remarkable risks to get to, get to Jesus. You know, Jairus, for his, for his position, what he does here is it's potentially career-ending for him. He is a synagogue leader. And already in the book of Mark, we've seen that that is a group of people that Jesus has already clashed with. In chapter 3, it actually says that the people in the synagogue, the leaders of the synagogue, were already, just just a short time into Jesus' ministry, they're already trying to find ways to accuse Jesus, to stop him in his tracks, to say, look, this guy is false. He's not the real deal. You must stay away from him and stick with the, the true Jewish faith. Jesus is not a popular figure in the synagogue and with Jewish authorities. And yet Jairus here, who's one of these Jewish authorities, one of these synagogue leaders, he breaks rank. In his desperation, he takes a huge risk. He's fully aware that Jesus is seen as a blasphemer, as someone who is at the absolute antithesis of the word of God. And yet he's heard and seen about Jesus' power to heal. And in that in that place of, I'm supposed to oppose this guy, but my daughter is dying, and I think this guy could heal her. He takes the risk. He swallows his pride, he risks his reputation, and literally throws himself on the mercy of Jesus. And you know, the potential of seeing his daughter saved from death, to him, it's worth the shame of begging to a man he is supposed to be opposed to. That's a risk right there. For the woman, you know, the risk's arguably even greater. Firstly, as a woman, just generally, women's social standing at that time was, was, was lower. And, and, and being a woman and being in public, um, it was not an easy gig. And added to that, actually, the very illness she was suffering, this, this bleeding, was a cause of further social isolation because of the laws of Judaism at that time. If we go back into Leviticus uh, chapter 15, there are specific laws about, about discharge and, and bleeding, which are really hard, really hard. And yet these were the things that Ju- the Jewish faith built their beliefs and practices on. And there's very detailed guidance there on, on what happens when a woman is bleeding. A woman who was having a period was considered to be unclean for the full duration of her period. And anyone who came into contact with that woman or anything that she'd sat on or laid on they were then declared unclean themselves. Can you imagine the pain of that? That actually just, just something natural happening meant that you were declared unclean and you had to be cut off. Now, this woman just, hadn't just had a week of that or a month of that. She had 12 years of continual bleeding. And that meant for those entire 12 years, she was considered unclean in her, in her culture. And even if that bleeding stopped, she would still have had to face another seven days before being declared ceremonially clean. And at which point she would have had to make a sacrifice to fully atone for her uncleanliness. It just, it's just, it doesn't bear thinking about. 
For 12 years, this woman had been designated unclean, unfit. You can't go near the rest of God's people. You can't go in the temple. You can't touch anyone. Anyone who touches anything you've touched is unclean. That is your that is your status. That is your role. You are, until this bleeding stops, you are an outcast. So even just by being in the crowd that day, that woman is taking a huge risk. Because if anyone spots her and says, you're, you're unclean. Numbers 19, 20 stated that anyone unclean who didn't, impu- didn't purify themselves would be cut off from the community. That was the risk this woman faced. If someone saw her and recognized her as unclean, they could literally just chuck her out and cut her off from the community of God. She risked just by being there, by being in potential contact with other people, and especially being in contact with Jesus. She'd be risked being cut off from her faith entirely. That's a risk right there. Jairus risked, the woman risked. And the final thing is this, faith. That's the final thing that these two people have in common, faith. Both Jairus and this woman have absolute faith, near certainty, that Jesus will heal their issues. That Jairus is so confident, he says to Jesus, I know that if you just lay your hands on my daughter, she will be healed. I know. I've seen who you are. I, 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 know, I know that I need to ask you to do this. I'm not asking politely in hope. I'm saying, you do this and this will happen. And this woman as well, she also had faith. Huge faith. And actually, the amazing thing about this story is the woman's faith was actually based on a misunderstanding. So, there's a verse in, in Malachi 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, which talks about the, the future Messiah. And it talks about the, um, the son of righteousness who, who will rise with healing in his rays. Okay? Healing in his rays. Now, the Hebrew word for rays was kanaf. But actually, in, in Hebrew, a lot of words have multiple meanings. And another word that kanaf meant was tassels. Tassels. And Jewish garments often had tassels on the edge. And this woman had, had got herself to a place of believing that she believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of Righteousness. And she believed that to be healed, she had to touch his tassels. That's why the passage says, depending which one you read, it'll say that she was trying to touch the edge of his cloak. The edge, because that's where the tassels were. Her faith was based on, I've got to touch, the thing that's going to make me well is touching these tassels. Actually, I don't think that's true. You know, Jesus could heal her. He healed in all sorts of different ways. It wasn't about touching tassels. That wasn't how Jesus generally healed. That's what this woman was like. I know that if I touch it, he is the Messiah. And if I touch his tassels, I'll be okay. It's strange, isn't it? And yet, she's healed. <laughs> she's healed. She touches the tassels and immediately she's healed. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Not her theology. Not her obedience. Not her understanding of scripture. Not her, her IQ. Her faith. The fact that you believe that I can heal you, that I'm your Jehovah Rophe, that has healed you. It's an incredible story. Desperation, risk, faith. These things, and these, these guys get the amazing results of Jesus' healing. These stories, I think, they can build such faith in us for healing today. And you know, God has not changed. He is still Jehovah Rophe. He is still the God who heals. And we've seen it here in Freedom Church. We've seen people having cancers healed and removed. Amen to that. We've seen Chris here. Frankly, has no right to be here. The illness he has is just 
you know, it's a one in a million illness. Two years ago, I think it was now, he was facing a bone marrow transplant that would put him out of action. Me and Matt were petrified, like, oh my word, Chris is going to be out of the game for like a year. We're going to have to run this thing. What are we going to do? We're going to have to like wheel him in on a hospital bed. Um, and amazingly, a simple blood transfusion, which was just meant to, I think was just kind of playing for time, wasn't it? Since that day, he had that blood transfusion. He's, he's been in the best health you'll ever see, Chris. I've known Chris a long time, and he's looking about as healthy as I've ever seen him. He's, and he's had this sustained period of amazing health against all the odds, against everything the doctors were saying. They were, they were desperate. They knew this bone marrow transplant was I mean, a huge risk, but a necessity. And then suddenly, no, we don't need it. God has come up with something better. You know, we see God heal today. He's the God of the impossible. Another story, a personal one for me, that's not actually my sister-in-law, but it's an illustration of what I'm going to tell you about. My sister-in-law uh, over in Leeds, she's a doctor. And she had this condition where she had a really abnormal curvature to her spine. It was almost like an S-shape. Um, it kind of went in and back out again. To the extent that she I mean, she pretty much had a, a lump in the middle of her, the back between her shoulders. It was kind of like a hunchback. And it was really pronounced. It was obvious. You could see it, you know, just, just the way she walked. She, her shoulders were hunched. She had this kind of protrusion out the back of her back. And I remember it really well. We were at this meeting. It was uh, uh, Terry Virgo, uh, leader of New Frontiers at the time, came up and, and was preaching. And, and he, he just, again, just threw out the call for, for healing. He said, if anyone wants prayer for healing, they'd like to pray for people. And I, I watched my sister-in-law <coughs> actually respond. She, she obviously just felt this rise of faith. Actually, yeah, I want, it, I want this, this. This needs to go. It was causing her a lot of pain. And I remember her. I remember watching her walking over to Terry, hopeful, but hunched. You know, she was, she was really, I mean, it was so obvious. And I, I got into a conversation with someone, and 10 minutes later, I watched her walk back, and I cannot even describe to you the change. She, her whole posture was completely different. The, the, the hump in the middle of her back was gone. Her spine was straight. She was standing completely differently. The pain had gone. She, and she was like, I, I, I don't know what to say. I'm a doctor. Like, I, I, this isn't me. Like, you know what I mean? God had just done something absolutely radical. God still does this stuff today. And we, I believe as a church, we believe as a church that miraculous healing still happens today. Why do we believe this? We believe it because I believe the Bible tells us. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 to 11. To one that was given through the Spirit, a message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. So another miraculous power, another prophecy, it goes on. Healing, miraculous healing, is a gift of the Spirit that is given to us. It's given to us. It's given to us as a church to use, to pray for, to see it happen. It wasn't given to put in a box and never use. It wasn't given to say, oh, oh, just for a bit, but not now. It was given. And then later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit. Eagerly desire them. So we're not just to put them to one side, but to say, no, God, you've given us these gifts. We want to desire them. Will you, will you bless us with these? Will you, will you use them in our church, in our body? Acts 14.3 says this about miraculous gifts. Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. He confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. You know, I believe God gives healing to confirm his gospel. It is a way of showing, I am the God who can save you. I can heal your sickness. I can set you free. 
and my gospel is true. And it happened in Paul's ministry, it happened in the other disciples' ministry, as they went around with the gospel, almost to back, back up and support the gospel, it was, look, this is the God we're talking about, this is his power. And James as well, James 5, 14 to 15, says this, If any among you is sick, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. Guys, it's an instruction. It's an instruction. If, if there's sickness, pray for it. Anoint with oil and pray. We want to pray over sickness in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. That's what the Bible says, guys. But you know what? I, I believe if I was alive 2,000 years ago and I was walking the streets of Nazareth with Achilles tendonitis, hobbling the streets of Nazareth, and I bumped into Jesus and I'd asked him to heal me, I am 100% convinced that he would have healed me there and then. 100%. Because actually, Jesus never, ever failed. We don't see one single story of Jesus failing to heal anyone. It's just not there in Scripture. Wherever Jesus attempts a healing, healing comes. And if, I believe if I... If I asked him 2,000 years ago and I met him, that healing would come. And yet even though I believe that power is still there, even though I believe that the Spirit has poured out gifts of healing amongst us, I don't think I've got the same faith today as I, as I would have had 2,000 years ago. Because I've seen prayer for healing and it hasn't always worked. And I still have my Achilles tendonitis. What's that about? It's not new. Actually, even in the New Testament, the apostles are doing miraculous things, but sickness still occurs. Paul talks about having a thorn in his flesh that was there for years, that never went away, that he asked God several times for, to say, God, will you take this away? This, this condition, we don't know what it was, but this condition that I have, please remove it. I want it to go. And it never went. Later on in Scripture, we see Paul instructing Timothy. Timothy obviously had this ongoing stomach complaint. And Paul doesn't say, you're set free, you're healed in the name of Jesus. He says, no, take some wine for your stomach. My kind of doctor, by the way. <laughs> Kathy, not a bit too enthusiastic there. <laughs> but yeah, Paul doesn't say, okay, I'm just going to pray for you, we're gonna, you're going to be healed and 100% everything's fine. He says, no, okay, Timothy, you've got this condition. I recommend this, try this. Even in the New Testament, Jesus always heals. But even in the early church, healing doesn't happen every single time. Other than when Jesus walked the earth, we cannot say that miraculous healing happens every time. Uh, other than when Jesus was on the earth, we cannot say that happens every time we ask God for healing. Because, as I said, we've, we've, we've raised our hands this morning. We're, we're all testimonies to that. That's, there are things that we've asked God to heal, and he hasn't done it. And that can be discouraging, can't it? I know when my kids are ill, I think often the first thing I reach for is not a Bible and some prayer. It's a bottle of cowpaw. Sometimes when they're not ill. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> I don't always rely on God straight away because actually we have other things that can help to heal. And sometimes I put my faith more in, the, in what's in that bottle or that packet of, t of tablets than God. And medicine and doctors are not, they're not bad things, of course. But often I think we got, we've got into the habit, I know I have, of, of only looking to them when we see illness. Only seeing, okay, what can, what can the hospital do? What can the doctor do? Almost because we've seen the discouragement sometimes, we stop asking God and we, we just rely on, on the earthly things that we have. And sometimes I believe we see prolonged illness and, and, and death as inevitable, rather than as things that are changeable by Jehovah Rophe. Sometimes we see a situation 
and we say, well, that's it. All hope is gone. This is not going to get better. This will result in death. It's terminal. We might as well give up. And Jesus taught a lot about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is wherever God is king, wherever he has rule and dominion. And when Jesus came to earth, that was God's kingdom fully at hand. It ushered in a time, a period that we're still in, where the kingdom of God is here already. But it's also not yet. Basically, God is the king of the world. Jesus is on his throne. And he is able, he is able to act miraculously throughout this world. And yet he doesn't always. Not yet. But there will be a day when a new heaven and a new earth are established. And when God's kingdom will be fully complete. And when there will be no more sickness. No more death. No more tears. No more pain. But for now, we see glimpses. Hebrews 2 <coughs> explains it really well. In putting everything under them. That's the angels it's talking about. God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We don't see everything subject yet. Not everything. We see Jesus as the king on his throne. He has lived on the earth. He has died for us to take away our sin to take away the punishment for all the things we've done wrong, to enable us to have a relationship with God. He lived and he died and he rose again to bring us in relationship with him. He has com- cons- uh, comprehensively defeated sin and death. And he's established himself as our saviour. And we can put our 100% trust in him. Our sins are forgiven. We've sung about the victory of Christ this morning. He is king. And yet, not everything is quite subject to him yet. How do we live in the light of this? Well, we want to be a church that moves in faith. We want to pursue God and his power, not for our glory, but for his. And we learn from Jairus, and we learn from the woman with the bleeding, that their desperation and their risk and their faith, they went for it with Jesus. And he rewarded them for it. He even says those words, the difficult words to hear. Your faith has made you well. Your faith. And sometimes we feel like we have faith and we're not made well. And it's how do we live in that? But we want to be full of faith to see God move. Not for hype, not for glory for ourselves, not to build up amazing, powerful healing ministries for ourselves. But to proclaim, as, as, as those words said, to, to bear witness to the gospel that we preach. To say, look, this is the God that we worship. The God who heals. The God who loves you. I believe God wants us to take him at his word. He wants us to seek him for everything we need. But we also need to be wise and understand that we live in the kingdom which is now but not yet. And that means if we believe, if we believe that God is sovereign and that he is present and that he is able to heal and that we can ask him for our healing, acknowledging that he has that power, acknowledging that is who he is, We also have to understand that in his sovereignty, his plans are higher than us, are greater than us, and that he knows best. And that what we might be asking for isn't always God's best for us. 
And that's the, the, the hard thing we have, to, we have to hold in tension. That God, we believe you for healing. We believe that you're a Jehovah Rophe and that you can, in Jesus' name, cure us and, and bring healing to our, to our sickness. And yet, God, we also say you are sovereign and that it might not be your will at this time. And we love you anyway and we submit to you. That's the tension we live in. It's not the will of man. It's not the will of man that sees God move in healing. Hebrews 2 says this, This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. His will. It is his will to heal or not to heal. It's not our our decision. But we are told to ask. We are told to ask. We are told to have faith. We are told to seek God for healing. We are told that he is available. And so we live in that tension of saying, yes, God, I seek you for healing. I ask you to heal. But I also accept that it might not be at this time. You know, I've heard it said many times. When we pray to God and we ask him for something, there's three answers that he can give. Yes, no, and not yet. You familiar with that? In healing, I disagree. I think there's two answers God gives. Yes or not yet. Yes or not yet. Why do I say that? I say that because of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That's why I say it's, it's yes or not yet. I believe we have to ask God for healing now, to take him as his word, that he's Jehovah Rophe. And I also believe that if the answer right now is not yet, then there will be a day. There will be a day. We're promised it. We're promised it. It's coming. There will be a day when there is no more sickness and no more pain and no more death. For now, we see glimpses. We see these moments where God, in his wisdom, in his might, in his sovereignty, sees fit to bring healing. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen it happen. We've seen it in this church where God says, okay, I'm going to act. And there are other times when we haven't seen it. And yet we say to him, God, we know it's coming. One day, when your kingdom comes in all its fullness, when it's not already, but not yet, but it's just here, then healing comes for all. So for now, what do we say as a church? We say, let's follow the example of Jairus and of this woman. Let's take risks. Let's be desperate. Let's throw ourselves on on the mercy of God and say, God, we need you to act. We want to be faithful to ask you for healing. You've given these gifts. We want to ask you, Lord, in your mercy, in your will, will you do it? And yet we also cling on to the hope 
and the certainty that we have that healing will come. It will come one day. I can't finish this morning without having some time for prayer for healing. Okay, we're going to practice what I preached, as it were. Guys, if you're here, if you're here today and, and you know there's something you need prayer for, that there's a, an ongoing illness or sickness or whatever it is, or someone in your family, please don't leave here this morning without us praying for you and without asking Jehovah Rophe, the God who heals, to meet you in that. We're going to pray for that. And I believe God will act. He can act and he will act. The worst case scenario is that the answer is not yet. That's the worst case. That's the worst thing that can happen. Not yet. The best thing that can happen is that God can meet you in your pain and can heal it miraculously. And I believe that. I've got faith for that this morning. 